You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right. Um, if you go ahead, if you don't have uh, your Bible on page 1 uh, for Genesis 1, find page 1. Um, it's at the beginning. And uh, while you're doing that, hopefully you'll find page 1 really, really quick. Uh, go ahead and you might want to find John chapter 1 because we're going to spend some time up there also. Uh, kind of as a commentary uh, for Genesis chapter 1, especially verses 1 through 3. And uh, once again, my name's Casey. And uh, if you've uh, never heard me preach um, by the end of it, you might want to go get your kids, if they're first through fifth graders, out of the first through fifth grade area, because I get to work with them every week, and it's a lot of fun. Um, but uh, there was something happened to me from the age two years old to the age five years old. I, uh, at two years old, um, I had this assumption that everything in the universe delighted a- after me. Uh, it's this, it's this, that's why we call them the terrible twos. I have a two-year-old who's about to be three. And there's this assumption that the world is the stage for my production. I remember, I grew up going to OU football games. I remember going to Memorial Stadium. I, I heard some murmuring on that. I grew up going to OU football games. I, I, grew up, I remember going to Memorial Stadium and thinking the 85,000 people in that stadium were probably there to see me. And I remember having that tangible thought, like, wow, everyone gave their Saturday to come hear me cheer. And uh, so I would try to entertain people around me. Matter of fact, during the twos, I I had this dress-up phase where I had my gear, my outfit. And my gear, my outfit consisted of shorts or jeans that didn't matter, um, underwear on top of the shorts or jeans, because a part of my outfit was Superman, um, a Wonder Woman cape, because I have two older sisters, and I got the Wonder Woman cape hand-me-down. They didn't buy me a Superman cape, so I ran around with a Wonder Woman cape, and I'm, I, I, yeah, I'm counseling, I'm okay with that, and uh, guns and boots and six-shooters. And so I would wear this because it was a part of my production. I would go out in public like this because I assumed people wanted to see my production. And it became the time for my sister's first day of school. So she was five or six going to school for the first time. So I was geared up because it was time to go to school, see what that was all about. And I needed the cape for my superhuman powers. I needed the guns in case those failed me. I needed, because you never know where evil might be lurking, and I had to protect my sister. And so we walk into the school, and all of us were there because my mom had three kids, five and under, which, by the way, we're having a a third kid. Science tells us it's a boy, and so we're going to have three kids, three and under. Um, So we're just trying to one-up my dad here. And so we walk in. And before my sister walks in the classroom, I kind of sidestep in front of her just to make sure everything's kind of clear and clean. And my sister just starts to cry because she had this assumption. She didn't have the same assumption that everyone delighted in me. And so we fast forward. I'm five years old. I'm about to go to public school. Um, a teacher came out. I remember the woman very vividly. She came out to test me to see if I'm ready for public school. And we do all these series of tests at which afterwards I failed. And they said I was not ready to go to school. At which case my dad took offense to it and says, there is no way we are keeping him at home all day for another year. He is going to school. And so suddenly there's this face off. My dad is like, my wife cannot handle him any longer. He's going to school. He's like, he's not ready to go to school. And he says, oh, he's going to school. And so I went to private school my first year. 
because we paid and they would take me. And so, but something different happened. At two, I walked in in my gift. I had my underwear on top of my jeans. I don't know why my parents allowed that sort of thing. The assumption I walked in with, everyone is here to delighten me. Everyone loves me. I'm fully accepted. Five years old, undersized for my age. I walk in and I'm so nervous, I can't stop grinning. The whole time I'm just grinning like this, like an idiot. I just can't stop grinning. And then I realize I'm grinning and everyone's looking at me like there's something wrong with me. I feel shame and disapproval. Not everyone is delighting in me. So I try to fix the grinning problem by tucking my cheeks into my teeth and biting my cheeks to keep myself from grinning. Something happened. At two years old, I thought, man, everyone delights in me. At five years old, the reality of this world and the brokenness that we use others as stepping stones for ourselves and not everyone delights, I felt a different shift. And when we look at Genesis 1 and we look at creation, I mean, sometimes the question comes up, why do we look at creation? I mean, things just kind of seem to be weird. I mean, we've got days, and we've got nights, and we've got expansion, and then somehow we've got, like, water, but we've got water up in the sky, and we've got water on the ground, and we make oceans and land. I really don't know what it has to do with the Creator God and how He delights in His creation. But when we look at this, the things I want you to see is we have this glorious creator who loves and delights in his creation. And at the pinnacle of his creation is you and me, is mankind. And he loves and he delights in you. And we walk around in such a way that we don't even see it. So we start in Genesis 1. And so if you're on page 1 in Genesis 1, if you're into kind of such things, you've got Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and you've got two kind of separate creation accounts. And sometimes uh, scholars come in and they get really bent out of shape. See, they're not quite the same. They're different. And I would propose what a lot of commentaries think and what C.S. Lewis ascribed to. Genesis 1 is a song of creation. It's a song about creation. And then Genesis 2 is the act of creation, how it unfolded and what happened. And all big things deserve songs. I mean, if you watch musicals, all the big things that happen in musicals deserve songs. If you saw West Side Story, anybody ever see West Side Story? I mean, don't be ashamed. Raise your hand. You see West Side Story? Anyone? Yeah, think cultured people. The rest of you all, get it. Uh, the rest of you. Glee. Has anyone ever seen Glee? All the big events have songs. I mean, for West Side Story, they come snapping out and the fight is a big event. And so they fight, you know, and so that happens. And so when we come to creation in the Bible, we see big events get songs and Genesis 1 explodes into a ballad of creation. We see it other places and other places. The songs that they sing are almost a little disturbing. I mean, if you look at Exodus 14 and 15, you have the telling of Moses taking the Israelites across the Red Sea in, verse, in chapter 14. And then in 15, they write a song about it in kind of explicit detail of how the, the Egyptians were crushed and dead and destroyed. And then you see it also in like Deuteronomy 4 and 5. You have the story of how Deborah tells Barak that Sisera will be destroyed. And then what happens is Jael invites him into her tent. And then when he's asleep, she takes a stake and a hammer and she pins his head to the ground. And then you have the creepy song in chapter 5 where it gives a lot of detail of how that happened. I mean, creepy detail of how it happened. And then you think, well, that's weird, but we do it. Have you ever, like nursery rhymes, have you ever read those things? That, that's wrong. 
Like the whole ring around the rosy, pocket full of posy. I mean, when you know that's about Black Plague, ashes, ashes, we all fall down, you're like, why are we doing this to our children? And so we see all these big events, so many big events in the Bible. There's a song. And so we start off with the song of creation. And so as we are looking at this, we want to ask the right questions. When you study biblical text, there are a series of questions you have to ask it. And so you, you want to ask who, what, why, where, when, all these different questions. But as modern Americans who are naturalistic in explanation, when we come to Genesis 1, the only question we want to ask is how. How did it happen? And so we start reading and we're looking, is there a big bang? Is there an explosion? Is there a gap? Are these literal days? Are these epics and eons? Where are the dinosaurs? I have to know where they are. We ask how, and the Bible does not tell us in explicit detail how. It says God created. That's how. And so when we come, there's two questions that I want us to bring the forefront. Who created and why did he create? And so in Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created. And so it starts off, we introduce the main character of the whole Bible. We introduce God, and it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Creation shows us who God is. At the very beginning, it introduces at center stage is God, the supreme creator over all things, because God is supreme over creation. And it's going to introduce at the end of the chapter his other character, man, and it sets this long story and process of God seeking after man because God delights in man and God loves man. Nothing that we did, nothing that we deserve, and all of Scripture is about how this comes to rest again. But it starts off in the beginning, God, and it shows that God is supreme over all creation. Everything begins with God. If you look at verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created. The term created is bara. Now, a lot of commentaries are going to make a lot about how this is creating out of nothing, but some commentaries will argue and push back on that just a little bit, depending if you're an old earth, new earth, and whatever you are, that's great. Go home and talk about it with your family, not here. It doesn't matter. Whatever that is. But bara, something very specific with bara, is it's only used in the Scriptures to describe when God creates. Only God can create like this. And so it says that God is supreme. It's a special creation attributed to only God. And so we see that God is supreme over everything. The second thing we see in verse 2, it goes on. Now the earth was formless and empty. We're going to see that God is gracious. If you're taking notes, God is incredibly gracious. The word for formless is, is tohu. And I only bring that up because the word for empty is boohoo, and it rhymes. And so it says, the word, in the beginning, the world was toohoo and boohoo. It was empty. It was formless. And those words are used to describe in the scriptures the desert as an unplaced, an unfit place for mankind. And so when it steps onto this scene, it says, in the beginning, God created, and he looked upon the earth, and it was unsuitable for us. 
In the desert, there's not food, there's not water, there's not materials to build shelter. Nothing lives out, it's not suitable for mankind. And so he looks at the world, he says, this is not suitable for man. And so out of a gracious heart, full of grace, he doesn't have to give us anything. He starts to form the world to a place to be suitable for us. God is supreme. God is incredibly gracious. Now, if you grew up in church and you hear that, that when you see this creation story, you see a gracious God, you take it for granted. But if you spent any time reading from other cultures, other creation accounts that are describing false gods, no one describes a God as gracious and loving and supreme. Most of them are some sort of struggle. You have the Babylonian where there's a struggle of what happened because they hired these under gods to dig the ditches of the world, which are the oceans and rivers and lakes. And they said digging ditch is hard. And so they rebel and there's this huge battle. And from the carcass of a god, the aftermath of destruction, mankind crawls his way out. And so we're made to be the lackeys of God to provide some sort of need for him. But the creation account does not describe the true God like that at all. He is gracious. He doesn't need us to accomplish anything. He is gracious. And then you see other accounts like the Egyptian creation account. It says that we're the result of chaos. It says there's this primeval sea that got stirred up and we just kind of popped out. And it's funny that a modern view of the creation account kind of fits like we're some sort of accidental creature that comes out. It wasn't specific made. The world wasn't specifically modified and molded for us. And so if we're an accident, life life is somewhat purposeless. When when this starts to unfold and we see this, we see it come out in so many ways. I, uh, I love the History Channel. And I watch it. I will catch myself looking at the History Channel. Like, I'll have a piece of food in my hand. I'll be at the counter. And I'll just get locked into it like this for, like, hours of just watching. And they've got this series called Ancient Aliens. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, not condoning that. I think it's true. Um, I'm just condoning that it, I, I like watching it. And so I watch it. And there's this guy. If you've seen it, there's a bunch of different ones. But they're all the same people. Because apparently there's a pretty small scientific community that really pushes this idea really hard. And so they make it into all the videos. And there's this one guy, and he's got black hair. He's kind of got cool, wavy, long black hair. But he gets so excited when he talks about aliens spawning life on here that apparently when they're not filming, he's combing his hair like this. And as the video goes longer and longer, and you get later and later into the duration of the episode, his hair just gets bigger and bigger. And it just grows. And it's the most fascinating thing to me because obviously my, my, my hair doesn't grow at all. And so it's just fascinating. But we come up, there's all these different accounts. But the true God of the Scriptures, it says God is absolutely supreme and He is gracious. No other view of God looks like that. When we start to look at this, so we see a supreme God, the biblical account of creation found in Genesis stands alone. We see a gracious God. He fashioned it to be perfectly suitable for mankind so we could know His glory. And now we see a God who needs nothing. If you look down at the text, in verse 1, 2, and 3, and then 26, we see something in the first pages of the Scripture that unfolds. It talks about this triune nature of God, God in plurality. In verse 1, it says, "...in the beginning God..." And so it starts off and we see the Father mentioned, the fountainhead of all creativity, the fountainhead of all creation. In verse 2, we see the Spirit of God was hovering. 
And so we see the Holy Spirit. So we see God the Father. We see the Holy Spirit. And the word for hovering is the word used as a, as a chicken would hover over her, over her little eggs in protection. And we start to see the character unfold. And then in verse 3, we see God do an act. God said. And we see this word of God go out and start to do incredible things. God said, let there be light. And then it says, and there was light. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 1. Because when John is describing his gospel, when he wants to show Jesus as preeminent, he gives the best commentating on Genesis 1 verses 1 through 3. And so he starts off in John chapter 1. He says, in the beginning... Right there, you could circle that because it's the only other time in all of Scripture those words are grouped together and said just like that. We have Genesis 1-1 and we have John 1-1. And so he's tying those together very intimately so that we don't miss the connection. And so Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, and then he introduces what we see in verse 3, was the Word. In verse 3 of Genesis 1, we saw it go out that he spoke and something happened. And so he comes and he says, I want you to know how it happened. And so he says, in the beginning was the word, this reference in Genesis 1-3. And then he gives more explanation. And the word was with God. Now that preposition, I mean, if you remember growing up, you have to take prepositions and you're either in the log, on the log, beside the log, underneath the log, with the log. If you are with the log, you are separate from the log. There is something distinction between you. And so it says, there is this word, there is a spoken word, this power that comes from God. And there's something about this word is it's not just God the Father, it's with God the Father. There's a separation. And so he starts to see this idea of the Trinity that we believe that fully separate, fully equal, but also fully one. And we, we don't even try to explain it. But we see this start to unfold. And so John starts to say, and he puts that preposition in there in, in a way that would communicate. I mean, if, if you had a friend and you knew he went to the movie last night and you said, hey, who'd you go to the movie with? And he said, oh, it was me, myself, and I. You would say, okay, they're really lonely or they're schizophrenic. And I don't know, some people like to go to movies by themselves. Oh, it's awful. I did it once. I was in college, and apparently I went on date night, and everyone was happy with their boyfriend and girlfriend, and they all looked at me with pity. He couldn't find anyone, and I actually left early. But what we see, he says, with God. It's a separate person. And then it goes on, it says, and the Word was God. And so then he says, John is showing that this separate person is God himself. Verse 2, it says, He was with God at the beginning. And then this illusion to creation, verse 3, Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. And he gives this description, he says, The reason why God's word can create, the reason why God's word is active, because God's word is a person. And so he says, in Genesis chapter 1, the Trinity was present. And it was this beautiful, beautiful party. And they stood there, and in adoration, they looked at each other, and they created, and they created, and they did not create out of need. They were not lonely. God would not have created us if we were lonely. He would have created some sort of cosmic puppy dog. He wouldn't create us to spit in his face and eventually crucify him. God has no needs. He's above creation. He needs nothing. And so we see this all-encompassing, all-beautiful, nothing 
that he would ever need for God decide one day, I'm going to create something and I'm going to fashion it in such a way because I'm going to make man and I'm going to delight in man. And right now, you might hear that and you say, oh, so what, what does it matter if God, God delights in me? And as we look forward, I'm going to propose it matters in every way, whether you believe or not, that God delights in you. And so we start to see this unfold. Now look at verse 3. And so we pick it up, and God said, let there be light. And I want you to really notice a pattern. We, we, I, I saved you from doing uh, verses uh, 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 11 all the way through 25, just because we see this pattern over and over. And we're not looking at the, the details of what happened each day. We're looking at this pattern. And, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness, and He called the light day, and He called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And so we start to see a rhythmic pattern that God speaks, it happens, and then he says, it is good. And so it goes on, and God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse, and he separated the water under the expanse from the water above, and it was so, and God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters, and he called them seas, and God saw that it was good. And so when we start to see this pattern, it starts to show us why God created. If you're taking notes, creation shows us why God created. And the first thing, in verses 4 and 10, he explodes and he says, it is good, it is good. God created because it gave him joy to create. He gave him joy to do so, that he stood around and he had this idea and he says, this creation is not going to serve me in any practical way. I have no needs. There's nothing that it's going to do for me that I need it to do for me. It's for joy that I create. It's for joy that I made this world. It's for joy that I created man. It's for joy that he created you and me. And I propose the greatest inventions are always inventions created just for joy. Just for joy. Uh, my, my wife's family has connection to the creator and inventor of Billy Bob Teeth. Um, her oldest brother uh, played football with the guy who created Billy Bob Teeth. And how that got started was he was standing around and he said, You know what would bring me a lot of joy? Would be a lot of fun? If we made these teeth mouthpieces that made our teeth look really kind of hillbillyish, and then we just walked around, like we go to IHOP and we order pancakes and we watch people look at us, it serves no practical purpose, but it's going to give me joy to see how people respond to it. And so we created Billy Bob Teeth. He found a friend who was in dentistry school and they made Billy Bob Teeth and now he's a millionaire. It serves no practical purpose, it's just for joy. And so Kinsey has one of the very first prototypes of Billy Bob teeth. And I think they look grosser now than maybe they were when they invented. But it serves no purpose. It just was for joy. When, when I was three, we all had this experience. When I was three, my mom decided she didn't want to raise a boy to be violent. And so she decided she wasn't going to buy me any guns like to play with. And I was three years old, and I remember I wanted a gun, because, you know, you never know what's out in this world. I mean, I've got to have a gun. I've got to defend this land of mine. 
And so one morning I was eating toast. And I might have been two. I don't remember. I remember I was eating this toast. And so I fashioned my piece of toast into a pistol. And all day long I took my toast pistol and I shot the dog and I shot the bad guys and I ran around shooting because it gave me joy to shoot them with my toast pistol. Later on the day, you know, toast starts off firm. It kind of was drooping. So then I was shooting like this. Later that afternoon, I ate my toast pistol because it gave me joy to eat my toast pistol. And so sometimes these creations, they come out for nothing more than joy. This tells us that God finds joy in his creation. He says it was good. It was good. And then he tells us something else. In verses 9 and 10, as we continue, it goes on. It says, And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered to one place, and the dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters. He called it sea. And God saw that it was good. We see this order start to come out, that science looks at creation, it marvels at the creative order, and it looks, it shows something glorious. And all of that is to communicate something even more glorious. God gave creation order that God might communicate His glory to all of His creation. And so, when you see this, Romans 1, it gives commentary on this, and it says, what was seen to man is made, is made plain to him about God because God's divine nature and his eternal qualities are seen in creation so that man is without excuse. He says, when you look at the ocean and you see the magnitude of the ocean, when you stand on the Grand Canyon and you see the glory and the danger of the fall, when you witness a storm and how it shakes you and all the glory of it, there's something marvelous. There's something beautiful about it. There's something so much bigger. There's something in it that you say, I want to be a part of it. I want to understand it. And so the danger is it. We see those attributes and then we worship creation. And those attributes are to communicate a greater glory, something more beautiful, something that we want to be a part of, something we want to understand. Something beautiful. It it goes on. When you see Genesis 1, kind of verse Genesis 2, there's this, this bigger effect that we see that God created so we could join in His glory. So we could join and be one in His glory. We see the glorious strength of the storm. And we know that the God of the universe took delight in creating the storm, but he took much delight in creating us. Just a couple nights ago, we had that lightning um, wind, but no rainstorm come through. And Kenzie uh, was with some of our home group girls, and so she was away. And so I was putting our two daughters um, to sleep, and uh, that rarely goes well. But we got him in bed, and we were asleep. And Quinn, my almost three-year-old, she was asleep. And usually she comes up with excuses to come out, to not be asleep. But she was asleep, and it was working. All of a sudden, a storm comes in, and lightning and thunder starts to happen. And there was this huge explosion of thunder. And it just seemed right there, and it startled me. And Quinn comes out, and she's scared. And she jumps in my arms because the magnitude of the storm was greater than she was. And I asked her if she was scared and she said yes. And I picked her up my arms and we went out on the porch and we watched the lightning all around us. And I said, it looks powerful, doesn't it? She said yes. 
It's bright, isn't it? She said, yes. It's loud, isn't it? She said, yes. I said, it seems to be much more powerful than we could ever be. She said, yes. Except every time she says, Wes, not yes. And so we did all that. I said, but you don't have to be scared because Jesus is in charge of the lightning and he loves you. Jesus is in charge and he loves you. And all this magnitude is just to point us to how powerful and how glorious he is. And it's supposed to be a a pointer, a foretaste that would draw us in, that we would see the glory and we would say, I want to be a part of that. I am missing something. And so we see the creation and C.S. Lewis in, in his sermon, The Weight of His Glory. He describes that intrigue and he describes it like this. He says, when you see the storm, when you see the ocean, when you see all of it, he says, beauty has smiled, but not welcomed us. Her face has turned in our direction, but not to see us. We have not been accepted, welcomed, or taken into the dance. We want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice, but the poets and the mythologies know all about. We do not want to merely see the beauty. We want to be united with the beauty we see. We want to pass into it. We want to receive into ourselves and to bathe in it. We want to become a part of it. But at present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the beauty of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendor we see, but, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And so C.S. Lewis says, when you look at this creation, and when you see a loving, supreme God who likes you, he, he created all, and you look at the marvel of it, there's something in you that desires something more than what you see. It's almost like it's calling you into something. It's almost like creation has a song and it's singing the song and we don't know the words. We don't know the lyrics and we want to be a part of the song. And he says, there's something going on in the New Testament that says you will one day be a part of this glory. And so we see that creation shows us why God created. Now look at verse 26 all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. What we're going to see is it turns. We see the magnitude of who God is. We see the beauty of what creation is. It tells us about who God is. But then creation shows us who we are. And the first thing creation tells us, we have a place because God expanded His community to us. God made place for us. In verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all creatures that move along. Verse 27, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created male and female. He created them. God made a place. Have you ever felt you just don't belong? Have you ever been the first day of school or you just moved and you walked into a new place and there is just clear dividing lines and you are on the outside and you feel like you don't have a place on the inside? Have you ever felt disconnected? Have you ever been jealous of a friendship, of a relationship, and you feel lost because you realize there's not a place for me? 
creation tells us God created a place for you. Most of the chapter is building up to make a suitable place for man. And he made a suitable place for man so that we could be ushered into the glory and the presence of God. So we could know God. We have a balloon falling down right now. Just ignore it. So that we could know that. Apparently there was a little... It's for you. And so what we see is that God made this place. And he called it, if we go on and we see chapter 2, he called it a garden. And he commanded man to rule in the garden, to act on his counterpart, to be a representative of God, to name the animals, to seek out, to subdue it. And we had a place. But we rejected that place. We said, we don't want God's place. We don't want his community. We don't want to be ushered. We want our own place. And we were exiled from that place. And so the New Testament goes on, but it tells us that we have a place. Creation tells us we have purpose. We have purpose because God blesses and directs us. In verse 26, it goes on. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And then look at this purpose. And let them rule over. And there's all these descriptions of what we rule. There is a place and there is a purpose. And it didn't stop with Adam and Eve. There is a purpose for you. You find yourself in your school, at your work, in your place, at this time. At this very time, it is not accidental that God has brought you to this place and time to be a part of His purpose that He is ordering, that He is dictating, that you could participate in the redemptive plan that He is unfolding for all of humanity. Not that he needs you, but that you could be like a child who wants to help push the stroller, but is not strong enough or tall enough to even reach, that you could participate in that. And so we see this purpose. It unfolds in verse 28. And it says again, but this time it says in verse 28, it says, and God blesses them. And so in verse 26, he says, and let them rule. And then he says, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then verse 28, it says, and God blessed them. And we think very little of the blessings of God until we feel we need them. But the blessings that we see in scriptures are so important to people receiving them. Because the blessing means that you have identity and you have a corporation and there is a fountainhead who is over you, is bestowing something beautiful to you. And so we are blessed and we are directed, but we reject his rule and we decide to do our own will. We fall like Adam and Eve. The serpent comes and says, surely God didn't mean what he said. Surely it won't hurt. And we believe what they believe. We believe that God is not for us and there is something better out there. There is a better plan that he's keeping from us. So we reject his plan. We reject his purpose. But God has made a place. And he has given you a plan and direction. And he has given you security. We, creation tells us we have security because God gives it to us. In verse 29, look at the text. It says, then God says, I give you every. And then it gives a description, every seed bearing plant on the face of the earth, every tree that has fruit with its seeds, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the ground, the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every. The incredible stewardship that God has laid before us. That there's security. That he says, I give this to you. 
Now the weight of that starts to press in and it can become overwhelming, but then we have rest. In verse 31, it says, God saw all they made and it was good. And it was very good. See, we have rest because God delights in us. Um, C.S. Lewis, as I, I was studying, I was reading his sermon for, for the weight of glory. I mean, I, there's two other quotes I took out of it. There was a part where I, I was moved to tears because he makes this point. He says, you are seeking to be part of the glory of God and he shouldn't give it to you, but he does. He delights in you in such a way that he gives. And he, he says it like this. He says there's a promise. He says the promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and it's only possible through the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really choose shall actually survive the examination and find approval and shall please God. And so he takes a picture and he says, we will fail the examination at the end times, but because of what Jesus does, we will pass the examination, we will pass through the judgment, and he will look at us and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And it goes on and it says this, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But it is so. God delights in you. God expands His glory and invites you into His glory. God brings it and He praises you in such a way that He says, you can be a part of this. I invite you in. And it's the picture that we see. I mean, we see it in, in all these different levels. If you have a dog, when you, when you come home and they're excited and you start, start to praise them in that kind of dog voice that you only do with dogs and you're embarrassed when other people hear you do it and you start to go, yeah, you did good. I can't believe it. I'm so proud of you. And you start to really, and they just start to waggle their tail and then the tail starts to waggle so much their whole body starts to move. And if you have one of those little dogs, they pee on the floor. That's why you don't get the little dogs. And they get so excited it's because they're looking at you and they want to hear from their master, good job. And then you try to do that to your cat and your cat just flicks its tail and looks at you and says, I don't care what you say because cats are not from God, they're from Satan. They look at you with disdain and they say, if you keep this ridiculous voice up, I will kill a small animal and I will put it on your bed which is sick. So dogs are good. Cats are bad. They want the approval and the affection of their master to be loved. But we see it everywhere else. You see it with students who want to hear from their teachers, good job. You see it from children who want the affection of their parents to be known by their parents who want the affection from the parents that gives them adoration, says, good job. Even when they're three years old or almost three and they want to push their little sister in the stroller, but they can barely reach the top and you really are just dragging them with a stroller as you hold their hands, but you include them because you want to fill them up, because you love them. And so you say, good job. 
If you're a father and you have daughters, you are supposed to be the kissy monster and kiss all over them. If you're a father and you have sons, I don't know what you're supposed to do, but science tells us that we're going to have a son really soon because we're pregnant. We're going to have a son. We'll have three, three and under, which we were in the restaurant with two, two and under. And a guy looked at us and, you know, they were going crazy because that's what they do in restaurants. And he said, you do know how this is happening, right? And I think he was being a little chippy with me. I wanted to say, no, draw me a picture. I don't know. But I didn't. I didn't because I'm trying to represent the gospel. And so I didn't. But you fill them up. A child wants to know that his parents love them and are satisfied with them. And so when I started off and I said, I believe that being ushered into the light of God, knowing that God delights you, weighs on everything. Because if you know that God delights in you and that he loves you, and because of what Jesus has done and the intricacies of how you are made and how you feel that you are broken and the things that you hate about yourself, when you know that God delights in you and his value is more than all the other people who have put name tags on you that say worthless, used up, passed by, whatever that might be, they won't stick. Because the Creator who is more powerful, who is more wise, who is more glorious, who is greater, has says, I delight in my creation. The land was good. The sea was good. The sky was good. The dinosaurs were good. All those things were good. But mankind, it was very good. And so there's this delight that starts to unfold. And just as children light up, when they find rest because they feel their parents delight them, God's people light up when they can find rest because they find that God delights in them. In the creation story, when you couple it with John chapter 1, it says very loudly, God delights in you. And so we, we, we jump back to John chapter 1. And what we want to see is the pinnacle of this. John was so careful to tie creation to Jesus. We want to see that Jesus is the agent of all beginnings. He is the agent of all beginnings. He was the agent of the beginning. And we see that in Genesis 1 verses 1 through 3. But he is the agent of all new beginnings. And we need a new beginning. Let's look at John 1 again. It says, in the beginning. It's the only time other than Scripture than Genesis 1-1 that we see that phrase. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Now look at verse 4. In Him was life. In Jesus is life. The first beginning created life. The new beginning restores life. And so the question is, do you have new life? It's only found in Jesus. It can't be found in any other part of creation. It can't be found in a spouse or a marriage or success at a job. It can't be found in any accolade that people would bring. All those will fail. They have an image of life. They have a representation of life. But at best, they are pointers to real life. And it says, in Jesus is life. Do you have life? It goes on and it changes life. It says, I want to show you what this life is like. I want to show you how it reacts. I want to show you how it spreads. And so it says, in him was life and that was the light of men. 
It says that life is like light. It goes on and says the light shines into the darkness. It says there is something tangible about the life that Jesus has. I mean, it has a starting point and it moves out. And there's darkness all around, but the light overcomes and it brings life. And so when we look at the Bible as a whole, we see in the beginning the supreme God who is gracious and makes room for us within the community of God. And He loves us and He delights in us. But then we see a fall. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we see a fall and we are separated from that light. But with that fall, there's a promise. There will be a man who will come and that man will bring life. It will come from the seed of the woman and it will bring life. And so then in the middle of the Bible, the scriptures say at just the right time, Jesus was born. He lived a perfect life and he died upon a cross as a substitute for our sins so that we can have life. And from the cross, the life radiates like light. And so this dark world that is blind, that can't see, all of a sudden eyesight is being given to him and we can step into the light and we can find life. It's the gospel. It's this beautiful story of God made this wonderful place and we made a wreck of it. And so God comes down to ground zero and He's searching for survivors and He breathes life into these dead bodies. And so when we look at that, it paints this beautiful picture of repentance. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. We go to verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, if, if Jesus came and he was only full of truth, we would all be in a very dark place. Because the truth about us, the truth that we find about our nature is we are fallen and we are corrupted and we don't want to see. We don't want to be told we're wrong and so we are doomed. But He didn't just bring truth, He brought grace. And so the gracious God that made room for us in Genesis 1 is the gracious God that dies upon the cross so that we can be reunited. And this is how C.S. Lewis describes it in Mere Christianity. When he talks of repentance, he says it's like the analogy of, of the spiritual life, of having this life that's given to us, is the same between the dead body and a live body. He says there's something special about a live body that a dead body can never accomplish. And so this is what he says about repentance. He says, even the best Christians that ever lived are not acting on their own steam. He is only nourishing and protecting a life he could never have acquired by his own efforts. And that has practical consequences. As long as the natural life is in your body, it will do a lot toward repairing that body. Cut it, and to a point it will heal, as a dead body would not. A live body is not one that never gets hurt, but one that can, to some extent, repair itself. And so we stop there, and what it's saying is that just as if you cut a dead body, nothing would happen, it would never heal, because there's no life in it that would bring some sort of repairing. But if you cut a live body, there's a life inside that starts to repair. And then he says, this is true for the spiritual man or woman, the person who is alive in Christ. It says this, in the same way, a Christian is not a man who never goes wrong, 
but a man who is enabled to repent and pick himself up and begin over again after each stumble. Because the Christ life is inside of him, repairing him all the time, enabling him to repent the kind of voluntary death which Christ himself carried out. And so, for just a second, close your Bibles, lay them on your lap, and and just get real still. When we turn to Genesis 1, we see this supreme God. You're my creator. Who starts off in this beautiful song of creation. And it's a song that has words, and a song that has a message, and it's a song that has beauty. And in, at the pinnacle of his creation, he creates man, and he says, it is very good. And he delights in creating man. Some of us didn't have parents that took much delight in us. Some of us are in marriages right now that our spouse is not taking delight in us. Some of us have children who have grown up and that five-year-old child who used to delight in mommy and daddy is rebelling and we feel no delight from it. We feel shame. We feel brokenness. We feel an isolation. We feel like we have no place. Genesis 1 says God has made a place for you and He delights in you. And He wanted to secure you and invite you into that glory and invite you into that delight. So at just the right time, He sent Jesus, who was the agent of the beginning and is the agent of all new beginnings. And Jesus died up on a cross, giving us life, ushering us into something new, giving us the words of this new song that we sing. And we join with all creation that sings this ballad to our Creator. And you need to know, the first word of that song is Jesus. The second word of that song is a song of praise, and it is Jesus. The other word is Jesus. Jesus, we pray through Jesus, we get to God through Jesus. Jesus died for us. When we want to know what God is like, Hebrews says, look to Jesus. If you want to know how God sees you, He has compassion on you. Because when Jesus was here, He had compassion on us. We look to Jesus, and so we pray to Jesus, and we worship Jesus, and we're thankful to Jesus, because Jesus has restored us to new life. And so we repent to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I am sorry when we fail. And he picks us up and he restores us. And then we give thanks to Jesus and we sing of his great worth. But it's only through Jesus that you can know those words. See, in the beginning, Jesus was the age of creation. John 1 is so careful to tell us that. The New Testament, the rustling that we find in the New Testament, C.S. Lewis, the rustling of the leaves, that we won't always be separated from beauty as a spectator. Beauty won't always just look over us. It's saying Jesus 
is not overlooking you. Jesus is looking at you. And he says, I love you and I am pleased with you and I have secured a place for you. You are my son. You are my daughter. And I delight in you. Nothing that you did, nothing that you are, everything about my glory and my worth and my beauty. But the only way we get in on that song is accepting the invitation that Jesus gives. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And so the two responses, with your heads down, your eyes closed, there would be a response that says, man, I am reminded of my deep need for repentance. And I needed to be reminded that God treasures me because all the indicators in my life are not one of treasuring. And they are making claim on you And they are weighing you down because you are believing them because you believe they are more powerful and more glorious than God the Creator. What more can He say to convince you? 2,000 years ago, He sent the Word. He sent His message. And it was Jesus Christ that He died upon a cross. And that reality was so great that, that... that Paul explodes and he says, I am convinced if he didn't withhold Jesus from me, what will he withhold from me now? So I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor demon, nor all of creation, nor sickness, nor death, anything, nor my job or my marriage or anything, it can't separate me from the love of God because Jesus happened. He was a ransom for me. And you've just forgotten that. And it's a time of repentance. God, I can't believe I let those opinions weigh more than yours. And I'm so sorry. I don't know why you treasure me. I don't know why you love me. I'm not deserving. And I confess and I repent. And I praise you now. But there's other people who don't know the words of the song. Because they've never responded to the gospel. The way you respond to the gospel is experiential. It's intellectual in a sense that you come to a place where you see Jesus and you see him crucified and you see him resurrected and you say, I believe that Jesus died on a cross for my sins and I'm inviting him to be my Lord and Savior. That's an intellectual part, but there's an experiential part that God comes in and he creates new life and you respond with those words for the life that he has created. And so the words that you are saying are the beginning of the song. By Jesus, I am here. And some of us need it. We need to give those words publicly. And so in just a minute, we're going to be led in song and we're going to stand and we are going to praise the name of Jesus. And we're going to say thank you to Jesus. And if you need to sit there and you just need to pray or if you need to talk to your neighbor, your friend, your spouse, your children, and you need to ask forgiveness, this would be a time of repentance. And it would be a beautiful time because you're saying God's view of me is more. If you need someone to pray for you, we'll have home group leaders to the sides and in the back. And you just go find and they will pray for you. But if you need someone that you need to declare to them, 
I now know the words of this song and it starts with Jesus because Jesus has made new life in me and I want people to know that I am now becoming a Christian. It would be your time to respond to tell somebody. And so you would move as we sing to grab one of the leaders on the side and just say, I want to pray because I want to be a part of this great song. Father, Lord, we love you. And Lord, may the adoration of our lips be Jesus. Lord, maybe the explanation of our life, of why these opinions around us don't destroy us, may they be Jesus. Lord, may we extend Jesus to our coworkers, our neighbor, our family, the people we go to school with, the people we live in community. May we express that kind of delight in them, not because of what they've done. I mean, we could almost even forgive people if we saw that they were created in God's image and had a soul and that our sin against God was wretched and He forgave us. Lord, let the the words of our song be Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. If you could stand with us. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.